Dr. Kelly Halls was born in Melbourne, Australia. She got her veterinary science degree from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia in 2002. She then went into mixed animal practice in Southern Australia for a few years, followed by two years as a locum veterinarian in various parts of the UK. Returning home in 2007, she then worked in a large small animal practice as well as an emergency practice. In 2015, she founded Benton's Road Veterinary Clinic in Mount Martha, Victoria. The practice emphasis is on integrated management of patient health through individualized nutrition, vaccine programs, and parasite control. Behavior is another focus area of the practice by use of behavior-based handling techniques and offering puppy training classes from the nursing staff. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Halls as we talk about her time in veterinary school, mixed veterinary practice, traveling during time as a locum veterinarian, and founding the type of practice she thinks should be a model for small animal practice today. Dr. Halls, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. So where were you born? I was born in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I live now, a few years ago. But yes, I was born in Melbourne, Australia. Huh. Uh, at what point did you think that you wanted to be a veterinarian? Uh, probably five minutes after I was born. Ah. I'm one of those that uh, wanted to be, I can't actually, oh, there was a brief period of time where I wanted to be a racing jockey because um, I knew I wanted to work with animals. Um, I am not far off six feet tall, though. Uh, so those hopes were dashed pretty quickly. Uh, um, do, do you ride it all, though? I used to. Um, I haven't ridden in many years, but part of my upbringing was uh, yeah, riding a horse around in a national park down in the beautiful Aries Inlet area. So that was a lot of fun and, um, yeah, a good relationship with a horse was established. Oh, that's great. So um, I don't know how it works there. Did, when it came time to, to think about veterinary school, do you have multiple options on places you can apply to or how does that work? Uh, in Australia, when I was applying, there were four veterinary schools that were available to apply to um, in the major cities of um, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth. I, When I finished school, I had a lot of people telling me that I probably wouldn't make it as a vet and I should look at other options in science and zoology. Um, I managed to get into science at Melbourne Uni and completed a couple of years there. Um, wasn't successful in getting into Melbourne vet school, but I did get into Brisbane. And so a couple of years later, I had to leave my whole entire world and move away from everything I knew and everything that was safe and comfortable and um, go and immerse myself in UQ in Brisbane. So what, I mean, what was the problem with people or what was the situation where people are telling you you're not good enough? I think they, I don't know, I assume they thought I wasn't smart enough or didn't quite have the high grades that was required to get into the vet school. It's pretty competitive, obviously. Um and maybe they were just trying to save me from disappointment and open me up to a plan B and having something, you know, to, to back up what I wanted to do. Um, I was pretty unimpressed with the thought of actually obtaining a science degree. I didn't know what on earth I was going to do with that. Um, so thankfully, I only, after only a couple of years, I did get into UQ and um, I was off. So as a, you, would you have equal footing to apply to all four of the schools? Is that how it works? Uh, yes, you can apply to any of the schools. Um, I was a bit narrow-minded because obviously being very young, I couldn't comprehend actually moving away from home. Um, so I only wanted to go to Melbourne. Um, and so I was devastated when I couldn't get in and I was on the phone to the, you know, to the dean and everything there trying to get in and um, was just couldn't understand why they wouldn't let me in. I was very, very upset. But in retrospect, oh, my gosh, it's the best thing I ever did. And um, I just had to open my eyes and, you know, develop a bit of maturity, I guess. 
So was is, was that it the the benefit of just getting away from home and being out on your own? Oh, I just I don't, yes. Obviously, if you move away from home and you move away from your friends and oh, my my boyfriend at the time and your whole my employment and everything, you've really got to learn who you are and stand on your own two feet. Um, and I think that development of a person in moving away from everything is is really important. And I you know I, I hope my children will go through a similar process when they um, come time to go into university. Uh, the other thing is I. I was lucky enough to land in a year of students that were just fantastic and so many of them are still really dear friends today. Um, but many of our lecturers and professors just kept on commenting that our year had a really particular sort of connection, um, really got along well together, was really supportive and um, we had a lot of fun. So I was lucky enough to land in that year and I'm very grateful that I did. That's really nice. So how many how many students were in your class? Well, I think we were about just under 100 or, you know, the 90s, 97. And how does that compare to the other schools, size-wise? Um, I think that it was similar. Um, I think maybe Perth was a little smaller. Sydney and Melbourne at the time were a little bigger. Um, we now have, I think we have seven vet schools in Australia now. There's a couple of others that have popped up in South Australia, Wagga and Townsville. Um, so it's a, it's a, there's a, there's more graduates coming out and there's a more, there's a bigger student pool. How many women were in your class, roughly? That's a very good question. It was very heavily women-weighted, um, maybe 80-20, I think, maybe 70-30, but, yeah, many more females than males. When you were in school, was it were you entertaining the idea of doing large animal work too? Um, I'm not sure, I, as in in vet school, do you mean, or in back in yeah, school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. School. Yeah, throughout vet school I thought I was going to be a horse vet um, and really enjoyed working with large animals and cattle. So I thought my future was in equine medicine, which is where it did start out um, in doing a lot of equine reproduction. I didn't didn't foresee where I'd end up, but I don't think anyone can really project much further than five years ahead in this world. Oh, that's true. And I, I think, you know, one of the benefits of our degree is that it just allows us so much latitude in things that you can do. Yeah, that's right. Within yeah. The yeah. So what sort of practice did you join after graduation? Uh, after graduation, I did the typical go into mixed practice. So I entered a practice that was about 15% equine, um, oh, maybe there was yeah 15% equine. Um, uh, large animals and then the rest small animals. So I ended up doing a lot of equine reproduction for um, horse studs, um, a lot of thoroughbreds, so a lot of rectaling horses, yeah, from very early in the morning to very late at night. Yeah, and it's pretty busy in the breeding season, I imagine. Very busy in the breeding season, yeah. We worked, yeah, probably 60 hours a week was fairly standard. Um, I certainly had muscles on my shoulders that looked awesome. It was a very good time of life of being fit and looking really good. <laughs> How many vets in the practice? Um, I think there were, was there three or four? No, there was four vets in that practice. There were two partners, two bosses, and then two new graduates. I actually started that job with a with one of the students I went to school with. Um, so we started as new grads together there, which was really good, and we were able to really support each other through the whole, you know, how do you be a vet kind of immersion. Were you close to home at that point or what part of the country were you in? Yeah, I did come back to Victoria. I was working in Pakenham, so it was not quite an hour away from where my true home was. Um, so I was able to duck back and forth and, you know, see my, my parents a bit there, which was which was good. It was good coming back to Victoria. That was what I had intended to do. And certainly because I'd always intended to be a large animal vet, I found the heat of Queensland difficult to do, you know, hard work in in the um, in the outdoors, which is what large animal stuff is. Sure. So how many, what was your on-call schedule mm. in that practice? What, it was one in three. Um, so 
one weekend in three plus one in one night in three. So it was really heavy. Um, and I started that from, you know, my first week on. There was no lead in, you know, hold you by the hand. It was off you go, here's your car, here's your medications, see you later. And we covered a really wide area being a large animal clinic. So we'd often drive, you know, an hour and a half to get to a call. Um, and our weekends were horrendously busy. Were you doing, uh, were handle small animal emergencies at the same time? Yeah, we did. Yep. Yep. So you'd be running from, you know, a foaling to a carving to getting back to a hit by car or a snake bite. Um, you know, it was a job that threw everything at you and, um, it was a very good way of learning problem, problem solving skills and triage skills and, uh, yeah, some communication skills as well. Oh yeah. Did you and your classmate feel like you were prepared? No. <laughs> How can you ever be prepared for that? <laughs> Um, no we both did do okay with that I know that other new graduates really struggled with it I guess there's a you know some people will thrive on that kind of pressure and that learning curve and some people just feel completely overwhelmed um so I know that there's more of a drift away from that now in being a bit more gentle to our new grads and I think that's probably good for a lot of them I think it might hold some people back um it did help me I had one of those bosses that just I'd, I'd go to him and say I remember saying George I want to refer this case he says why do you want to refer this case um, Kelly, and think of that in a very British accent. You know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, it needs to be referred so they can do X, Y, Z. And he goes, great, you know exactly what to do. Go and do it. When you get stuck, then call me again. <laughs> so he was very, very supportive, but I did have to go and give everything a go first. Um, and they would definitely come and back me up if I was in trouble. But yeah, he just really pushed me to, to do it first. And it gave me a good sense of um, confidence that I could cope with a lot more than I had thought I could. That's nice. Hmm. That's really nice. Did you feel like... Um, school prepared you for the breeding work that you were doing? No, no, that was a learn on the job. And um, yeah, my boss again took me out with him and sort of taught me that on the go. Um, I, yeah, I didn't learn much about yeah doing rectal and ultrasound of, of horses at the time. Was there any pushback um, if, uh, being women? Yep. Being, you know, being, being a woman? In, yeah, it yeah. was funny. Um, a lot of the equine places actually did welcome me on once George had introduced me. They held him up as a god um, because of his level of experience. But I did have a number of cattle places where I'd turn up and they'd just go, oh, love, I think you better go and get your boss. And that would just put a bit of fire in my belly. I'd say, get me a bucket of warm water. I'll call my boss when I'm stuck. Where's the cow? Um, and had to prove my way through a lot of cattle properties. Um, the equine places, I think, were actually a bit better um, in being a bit more open to a woman. But, yeah, the, the cattle places struggled. Yeah, that seems pretty universal. And it's really nice that at least, you know, your boss would take you around and say, hey, this is, you know, mm. she's with us and and that to pave that way a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. It did make it a lot easier with a lot of people. So <clears throat> how long were you at that practice? Uh, just under two and a half years. Um, at that time, I had met my now husband and we wanted to do a bit of travel. So we headed off to do the whole UK locum travel experience and, um, yeah, went overseas for two years. Oh, where'd you go? Uh, well, England. And we went all over the place in England. Um, I worked, well, yeah, um, yeah, we worked in London. We worked in um, uh, Yorkshire. We worked in Wales. Um, I had, uh, you know, a whole heap of different jobs there and that was a, a different sort of learning curve but it was really good and then we also did a whole heap of travel as well throughout Europe and also you know India and Nepal and um, it had just that lifestyle of getting paid exceptionally well for what you were doing being given accommodation and a car and um, just being able to say actually I'm not available for this month I've got to go and travel to a different country and see something else and then coming back and doing it again so it was a lovely way to live for a while. 
Oh, that must have been fantastic. It was so much fun, so much fun. And also because of the stage we were in our career, um, a lot of people from my university were actually over there doing exactly the same thing. So we'd all meet up. You know, we spent Christmas with a bunch of eight of us over in Mirabel in France. You know, we, we had, again, a lot of support over there from our friends. Um, so we weren't alone, that was for sure. How about the practicalities? Was licensure a problem or how does that work? No, it was all very easy at that time. It was simply you go over there, you turn up to the Royal College, you sign an oath, pay your money and off you go. There's a um, you know reciprocal agreement of the veterinary degree. Um, so it was very easy for us to practice in the UK. Um, I think that locum, I mean, obviously everything's changed now in the state of the world with, with the virus, but um, even a few years ago, it's becoming a lot more difficult to get over there and work. But um, at the time I went, it was dead easy. So what did you guys do after those two years? Then we came back home. My husband wanted to go into the paramedic um, profession. Um, so he went back to uni and I joined a, a busy clinic um, actually quite near where I grew up um, and worked there for probably about seven years um, and at the same time had a few babies along the way. What sort of clinic is it? The clinic that I was at there was um, was a busy sort of four-branch veterinary hospital Um small animal only at that point. I'd, I At that point, I'd had that biological clock kick in and decided that I did want a family, which surprised me, um, and thought that maybe large animal work was not where I really wanted to go and what was going to be sustainable for me with a family. So went into small animals and loved it. Um, so, yeah, it was a very high standards, very busy um, for, for practice business and a great place to keep on learning. How many veterinarians were at that practice? Oh, that's a very good question. I think there was probably something like 15 or 16 vets across the four businesses, so quite big, and lots of really experienced people with special interests in certain fields. So you could do a lot of internal referral and get second opinions from people within the clinic. That must have been a really great learning experience. Yeah, it really was, yeah. Um, yeah, they encouraged me to do you know some CVE courses as well, so furthered my learning in different areas. Um yeah, I had a good time. I, I also delved a bit into emergency at that time and um, locumed a local emergency clinic for about seven years as well here and there. So that was a, another big learning curve of how to deal with, with that side of things. Um, how many kids during that time? Two. I have two gorgeous girls, a bit over two years apart, who are now, one's about to turn nine and the other one is 11. Oh, wow. So after the after that practice, where did you go? Um, I then went into emergency full-time, um, crazy decision, um, and had to deal with doing night shift and doing that whole, you know, full-on emergency work um, where you're sort of responsible for, you know, a whole, a whole hospital and a whole waiting room of patients with um, urgent care required. So that, again, was a big learning curve. So you're doing overnights then? Yes, I was doing overnights, yes. Yep, and then coming home and trying to manage children. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And you're... Were you you and your husband working opposite shifts then, or how was that? Oh yeah, it was kind of it was one of those things of this is my roster, this is your roster. Uh oh, here's a gap. Um, what are we going to do here? Um, ring around for some parents and um, try and sort it. Um, yeah, we had a bit of support network, but it was good. And at the same time, this was at the time when we decided we wanted to open our own practice, so we were going through the whole um, council permit planning rigmarole um, that that entailed. So. It was a busy time of year. What um, did you enjoy the 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 pace and the scheduling at doing ER work? Yes, I did, and i I enjoyed um, 
sort of stepping back and taking a bit of an overview look at the cases, um, emergency work is a funny thing because you don't get the follow-up with it. You know, it's it's emergency, you deal with it at the time and then it goes off somewhere. So you don't often get that follow-up. But I really found I enjoyed forming relationships with the people that were there and um, alleviating their fears and then giving them a plan of where they should go afterwards. So you need to go back to your vet and they will do this, this and this and then this will be, you know, the, the possible outcomes. Um so I, I really enjoyed that part and working out what was truly emergent work which had to be done at this hospital and what should be referred back to the referring vets because at the end of the day, as an emergency referral hospital, your vets are your clients as much as the pet owners are your clients. Um, so that whole communication triangle um, I kind of enjoyed, strangely. Nice. So, but obviously there was an itch you wanted to scratch, you wanted to have your own place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it was also um, getting to the stage of thinking, wow, I work really hard. I do communicate well with my clients. I do have a good relationship building um, ability. If I'm going to work this hard, why don't I earn the benefits instead of working for someone else? So yes, we did um, embark on setting up our own place. So you scouted a location. Did you build a building or did you purchase one? Yeah, we purchased one. Um, as in, we purchased a house and converted it. So we literally, we did a lot of um, uh, research into the area where we lived and try and work out where would be a good growth um, area to set up a practice. And the area actually ended up being within walking distance from where we lived. Um, and we looked all over the the peninsula, the Mornington Peninsula is where I live, um, and just kept coming back to actually this is where all of the government and council-focused growth, um, you know, is invested, so this is where we should be. So we looked at it, looked at it, looked at it, and eventually we basically just went and knocked on a door and said, hey, have you thought about selling your house? Um, they said, oh, actually, yeah, we could do that, <laughs> and so we bought it, um, and it was as simple as that. Crazy. So do you, do you still live within walking distance? We do. Yes, we haven't moved from our house. Um, it is still walking distance. Do I walk all the time? Not necessarily, but I could and I should. Oh, that's really nice. That's a nice option to have. It is. It is really, really good. When I'm not running around, you know, picking up or dropping off children, it's um, it's a lot easier. <laughs> so uh, was there a ton of work involved in, in getting the house ready to be a practice? Yeah, there certainly was. It was a lot of planning and engineer reports and approval, and that took us a lot longer than we expected, probably about 12 months in total. And then we had to renovate the property. So we um, put a big beam in the roof and ripped out a lot of the walls and converted it into quite a well, it, I think it was quite a well-designed veterinary clinic for what it was because it's, um, you know, from being a house conversion, um, it's got a really nice flow. Um, everything's, you know, nice and close together and nice and easy to get to. Um, so it worked really well. So was the plan going in? So you're still doing emergency work during this time? Yes, I was at the time. Yes. Okay. So was the plan going in? Hey, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm shooting to have a a multi doctor practice, or were you just thinking this is just going to be me? No, um, I thought that I would like in time to build the practice to being maybe a three vet equivalent practice. Um, and I thought that'd take me probably about five years to get there. I knew that I didn't want to just do it all on my own um, because I do have a family and I wanted to achieve that you know elusive work life balance. Um, so that was my goal, but I did set it up with going, okay, this, this building is going to work for, you know, two to three vets and um, we'll get there eventually and it's just going to be me for a good period of time before we get reach that mark. Did you use a, a veterinary architect or how did you come up with the plan? Uh, no, sketches on the back of a handkerchief I think was where we went, you know, just in a cafe with my husband just going, how could we make this work? And, um, yeah, just drew it up ourselves. 
And you've been, geez, you've been in a ton of practices, so you probably knew what you liked and didn't like anyway. Yeah, that's right. I had a bit of an idea of how I thought the flow of the building would work best. And we were lucky that the um, the design of this house fitted that quite well once we eliminated a few walls. Um, so, yes, I did have a pretty clear idea. And, yeah, my husband, who is not a vet, um, kept saying, well, what about this? What about this? I'm like, no, nah, it's got to be this way. Got to be this way. Bit of that control freak coming in, <laughs> poor guy. Um, but, no, we just made it work that way just by sketching it out ourselves. And then we took our, um, our drawings to a draftsman and said, can you make this work? Nice. So you open the doors. Are you still doing emergency work or did you just go all in on the practice? No, I went all in. So I left for emergency about a month before we opened. I did a bit of a locum at a friend's practice for them while they were away. But I started opening the doors with just myself as the vet and two nurses who had kind of overlapping shifts. Um, and that was us. You know, literally, we had a, an open day the weekend before we opened. I had my father and my family going and doing a letterbox drop the couple of weeks beforehand um and then we you know had the old sausage sizzle and face painting and that sort of thing come and have a tour of the new clinic and um, welcome aboard wow um so how long did you go before you were able to hire an associate actually not as long as i thought we opened in april and i think i hired my first full-time vet in november so um yeah not nearly as long as i had expected that's really good um, were you, did you, were you able to refer cases to an emergency clinic then? So you were able to shut down for the night and go home and. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We were lucky that, um, the emergency clinic at the time was a 20 minute drive away. So it was a no brain of just saying, no, this is going to be my lifestyle clinic and I don't want to do after hours and I don't want to work on the weekends. So we're open for a short period of time on a Saturday morning, but otherwise everything goes to the emergency clinic. So what things have you done at, at your clinic that you've really set yourself apart what do you what are your interests yeah my interests are and i sometimes struggle to put this in a neat little box but i i do say that my interests are in holistic healthcare um and what that means to me is that we look at the health of the whole patient and how do we build that patient up to be as healthy as they can be so one of the main focuses for, of that for me is to ensure that that pet is on the correct nutrition um and i'm strongly opinionated that I just don't think that dry food, um, the model of dry food feeding of our pets is in any way um, the healthiest way to go. So fresh food nutrition is one of our main pillars of health. The other pillar of health that I really focus on is just tailoring the medications going into that pet. So when we talk about vaccinations and parasite preventatives, what does this individual pet need in this individual environment and what's the minimum amount of medications we can put into that pet um, combined with some good surveillance methods to make sure this pet stays well and healthy because nobody wants a pet riddled with parasites. Um, but we've got to be a bit more mindful about the amount of drugs going into a pet and into the pet's environment um, and really tailoring that to just what that pet needs. Was that a, an uphill battle for, for the area or were people ready to accept that sort of thinking? Um, it was interesting. The, uh, the And this philosophy kind of evolved as I opened my practice. I, I opened it just with the thought, I just don't want to be made to sell, you know, a packet of, you know, all, you know, the, the kill everything preventatives. I don't want to be made to give a heartworm injection and to vaccinate everything every single year. I just want to pull back on that. Um, over time, that has evolved much more into, oh, my gosh, this is really the wrong approach if we do this. We've really got to pull back and, and treat mindfully. Um, as I've been evolving with my way of practice, I find that actually clients are looking for this more and more. 
because when you parallel that with the healthcare plan these days, you know, everybody is told to, to avoid processed diets and they're told to avoid medications as much as possible. And so people do look to their pets now who have a much higher value within the family and they want the same approach. And so as I guess the name and the brand of our particular practice has gotten out there, we have have people just wanting this from so far we have regularly people that drive 90 minutes to access our veterinary services as well as many many requests for um, telemedicine um, for second opinions and for nutrition services so these days people are they're almost demanding this practice and I, and I think this is one of where my new passion is developing is helping other vets understand that this is the way that we should be going both for the pet but also because this is the way that the client demand for our services is going to drift. That's amazing. It must be really rewarding to have that kind of demand. Oh, it's. Um, I mean, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here at the moment almost trying to work out how to slow down business growth because I can't keep up with it, um, which is not what I want to do, clearly. I want to, I want to meet it. Um, but it's really flattering to have that much demand for the way we practice. And people just are so appreciative. They're like, oh, my God, you know, you're the first vet that, you know, isn't telling me that I'm, you know, going to kill my dog if I do things this way. You know, the first vet who agrees that I can feed human food to a dog and still have them do it well. Um, and so, so many people are so appreciative that we are there. Um, it just saddens me that there's so few of us at the moment that do offer just a slightly different way of practicing. You bet. So how many associates do you have now? At the moment, I think I have just under four full-time vet equivalents. Um, we do have, I guess, a family-friendly practice. So that means we have a lot of part-time staff. Um, but overall, I think we're probably, and I've just put another person on for a couple of days. So we're probably about four full-time equivalents now. And you obviously you're attracting people that want to, pra to practice with that start, sort of philosophy then. Yes, yeah, certainly I do. There's people who, you know, approach me and just say, look, this is what I want. Um, and I have a couple of key vets that, you know, just say that couldn't work anywhere else because they couldn't. And a lot of my nurses as well, once they come to work with me, they say they couldn't go anywhere else because I couldn't go back to that, that old way. It is difficult, though. There's still, I don't think, you know, enough vets out there. Um, you know, aware and understanding of this process and perhaps a little bit fearful. So it's not easy to attract vets to a practice that has a little bit of a difference. Um, I don't know if in the US you see the same sort of um, shortage of veterinary numbers that we're seeing in Australia at the moment, but it's really difficult to find any vet, let alone a vet with a, a special interest. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because, you know, on one side they say the, the colleges are pumping out more and more graduates, but when you talk to practitioners, they they can't find help. No, that's right. And that's the situation I'm in at the moment. I think I listed a job recently and, and was dismayed to see that in the Melbourne area, there were already 107 jobs posted. Um, so, oh my gosh, how do you make yours stand out? Why would anyone come and work for us over 107 others in the, you know, closer into the city, which they are? It's really tricky. Do the schools there have, um, well, we, we would say like an alternative medicine club or a complementary medicine club? Um, I think a couple of them do. There, there is um, like an integrative medicine. I, I actually prefer integrative term rather than um, alternative because I really think they do need to marry in together rather than be, you know, a, an us or them kind of approach. Um, there are a couple of them. I do also run a Facebook group for veterinarians, um, for vets seeking more knowledge on natural veterinary practitioners. Um, and so that's a really good way for us to network. Um, but I still find there's, there's, um, not that many of us around, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, I bet. could say yet. Yeah, not that many of us around yet. 
Right. Right. So let's go back to the food thing. So do you sell food at the practice? I certainly do sell food at the practice. Um, I will not sell dry food in my practice because everything that is sold in my practice must have a health benefit. And I don't believe dry food has a health benefit. Um, so people are often surprised to see that's like, where's your, your hills or your row of cannon stands? Like, nah, don't have it. You can feed those. That's not a problem, but you can't buy it from me. Um, and then do you, you do some, um, Recipe generation, or what if yeah, people so want to cook of, it? Um, yeah, a lot of like a lot of our retailers, we sell you know pre-made, um, obviously like that bath model food. So we sell a lot of um, fre- frozen raw foods for both cats and dogs. Um, we also sell a lot of the um, air and freeze dried raw foods for cats and dogs. We sell some chilled products as well. So I guess if you think about fresh food in the form that is required for a cat and a dog, it has to be in a fridge or a freezer because it is meat based, um, not shelf stable. Um, as well as that, I do a lot of nutritional counseling. So we try and get every, you know, every new puppy or kitten that comes in, we introduce them to feeding a fresh food diet. Um, and then I also will do a lot of um, home prepared diets specifically for unwell pets. Um, so, you know, somebody has had a, a pet diagnosed with renal failure. What can I feed? I don't want to feed the prescription kidney diets because I've done a bit of research and I don't think that's the right way to go. They come to me and I'll do a, a recipe for them or a, a food plan for them. So you must have to devote a lot of space in the clinic to food storage. Uh, well, I don't actually do a lot of food storage. I give them the knowledge. They buy the food at the supermarket. Um so I, I, unfortunately, in my building at the moment, I don't have that retail space. I have some, but not enough. Um, there's potentially plans to improve that. But at the moment, I'm a bit limited with what I can offer. You know, just there's only so many fridges and freezers you can fit into a, a small building. Um, but a lot of the food plans, they're based on human food. So people go to the supermarket and buy what they need, um, yeah, depending on, on what the plan is for that particular pet. It is kind of nice because then that, you know, they're doing that that kind of work on their own. They're getting that uh, ownership Oh, absolutely. They they suddenly feel like they're in control. They know exactly what's going into their pet so they can approve of it. You know, when you buy a processed diet, you don't, you've got no idea what's in it. Um, And you're a bit bit blind and you you rely on trust in the company that makes it for it to be the best best for your pet. Um, Now, if you don't think that marries up with your philosophy, to be able to prepare your own diet, but know and have the confidence that it is a balanced diet for your pet, um, gives them back that, you know, that whole sense of I'm doing the right thing and I know what I'm doing. Nice. And now, if memory serves, you have an interest in behavior as well. I do enjoy behavior, yes. And again, this is part of you know looking at the whole pet. Um, but the the impact on you know the behavior and the anxiety level of that pet is going to impact its health, and vice versa. You know, we know when we look at the studies in human anxiety and depression, these conditions are both affected by and affect the gut microbiome. You know, so it all goes hand in hand. There's a lot that we can do in how we manage and interact with our pets that are going to improve their overall health and well-being, and that comes down to their gut health and their immunity um, and psychological health. And there's a lot we can do to feed and maybe not medicate our pets so well that is also going to have a positive impact on their psychological health. What other plans besides the... uh the Facebook page do you have for educating veterinarians about this kind of practice? Yeah, I don't know. This is a, a one of those ones where I'm I'm still unsure about where to go with this. I would love to educate vets more about how to introduce fresh food feeding into their um, into their treatment plans for other pets. Um, there's still a lot of pushback from a lot of veterinarians about this approach. Um, and I'm also a member of, you know, just a conservative veterinary Facebook group. And you sort of, I, I put in a bit here and there, but you get sick of being a bit vet bashed um, and, you know, just pulled down a bit by other members of your profession. So the, 
I'm not sure whether I want to stick my neck out and, and do that education or whether it's going to be hard work, but then I also feel that is the direction of the profession, so maybe we really should be doing it. Yeah, you know, I just think, I think of your position as a business owner and mm. all the experience you have and your interest and, in, geez, you know, be a waste for you not to be able to share that knowledge as a mentor. Well, this is true. And I certainly do train and mentor my vets in um, in this. And, you know, we all have the same philosophy, you know, it's just, it's, it's just basically, you know, unprocessed food is the way to health um, and minimizing the drugs going in is, is the way to health. So they either come to me with that belief already um, or are very quick to go, oh, this makes so much sense. Um, and yes, let's, let's further this. So my, my little cohort of vets is very easy. It's the greater population of professionals that I'd love to be able to influence a little bit. You bet. It's a really rewarding way to practice though, isn't it? Oh, it really is. And I, you know, I do marvel, you know, we don't have that. I don't know if this is a true reflection or if I'm just imagining it, but we don't have as many, you know, really sick patients. Um, you know, so we, ha we have a lot of, you know, when you, when you see a dog come in with that chronic skin issue or that chronic gut issue and you just do some really basic things and you suddenly cure their, you know, previously assumed IBD or their allergies, you're not going to cure an allergy with a diet change, but you can make that dog much more tolerant um, and better able to cope with the allergies that it does have. And so their reliance then on their prednisolone or their cytopoint just goes down. Um, you know, we see the client less commonly, but we are seeing them much more for proactive work. And I find that really rewarding. You know, people actually coming in and saying, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not needing to see you for the antibiotics and the prednisolone anymore, but what else can I do to make my pet really well? It's like, great. Well, now we can address your dental disease. Now we can do some um, proactive blood testing and screening for things. Um, and I just think that, you know, it just, it is so much more rewarding and um, people feel like they're doing so much more for their pet instead of just that reactionary medicine of, oh, we've got a skin flare up again. Where's my drugs? Yeah. Are you optimistic about the future of our profession? I am optimistic about the future of our profession, um, but I also have, we've really got to address the reasons why, you know, come back to the reasons why we have so few veterinarians when we're pumping out so many new graduates. It's because of our attrition rate. We don't have the experienced vets staying on in veterinary practice um, and making up the weight of vets. So why are they leaving in droves? And obviously that's multifactorial and there's so many things to it, but I think we've really got to look at that to try and encourage vets to stay so that we get more vets. The other concept is maybe we need to change our model of um, running a veterinary business so that we're not so reliant on just the vets having that relationship with the client and um, having you know, your whole team and nursing team being responsible for the relationship with clients and having our nurses do so much more than um, what they do at the moment. I think that might be part of the way forwards as well. Is that something you encourage at your practice is to have the nurses take an active role? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm going to be looking much more into that as well, just because we can't get vets at the moment. So, um, you know, just, you know, vets don't, you know, really shouldn't be doing things like taking bloods and running blood tests and, um, you know, so many things are what vets do and not what vets are required to do legally. And so if we can have nurses doing so much more of that, the nurses get more job satisfaction, the vets can achieve more, um, and the pet's probably going to get better care because we've got more time to see them. So, yes, yeah, I'd like to really move towards that um, in the future. I think it's a great idea. Mm. Um, anything I should have asked you but didn't? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think just one more thing. I, I think that also one of the risks that we face as a veterinary profession is losing the trust of the pet owning population if we don't start listening to them more. You know, as I said, pet owners are coming in, you know, wanting 
to be able to feed their dogs a raw diet or a home prepared diet or wanting to not vaccinate them annually. And I think we've got to get down off our veterinary pedestal um, of being that authoritative figure saying, well, you have to because I told you so and I know what's best and you don't. Um, I think that it, we, we really run the risk of people losing their trust and then going to non-veterinary professionals for help because there's a lot of non-vets out there offering, you know, offering homeopathy or offering natural nutrition or offering, you know, all sorts of health things. Um, and we really run the risk of these people leaving the veterinary profession, which means that, you know, dentistry isn't addressed or their health issues aren't actually addressed. So I'd really, I think that's another really important reason that we do adopt um, a bit more of a listening approach to our veterinary care. I couldn't agree more. Well, I want to respect your time. I know you've got things to do today. So thank you so much for um, joining me. And I really enjoyed talking to you. No worries, Neil. Thank you very much for your time as well. It's been fun. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.